0: Welcome to the Popcorn Talk Network. For the online broadcast network that features movie discussion, news, and interviews, press 1. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. From the Popcorn Talk Network, the online broadcast network for movie talk, Alicia Malone with Scott movie Mance and the Schmoes know, this is Profiles, in-depth spotlights on the greatest filmmakers and artists in motion picture history. Hello, Hello Profiles! Profiles. Ah!
1: We have. A special show today, just in time for the night. <laughs> oh he came home. You were
2: really scary in that mask. Oh, is
1: it scary? Yeah. Uh, okay, good because it's also woo. It is also really hot. Oh my god. Woo. Okay, Manch is back in the house, <laughs> just in time for Halloween. Yes. Who are we doing today?
2: Well, we're doing... John, John Carpenter. Carpenter! And this I'm probably was... a bit too blonde for Jamie Lee Curtis, but I've got the shirt and I've got the flares and I'm going to keep it on.
1: People get it. Yeah. Because she looks hot as a blonde, right? Come on! <laughs> hot as a redhead, that. hot as a blonde. do And we got a hot show today. You know, i got to tell you, the thing about John Carpenter is, you know, when you think of his movies, there are a few that definitely come to mind without even blinking but I gotta say, for the first time in a really, really long while, doing the research for this show, rewatching these movies, I probably learned more from this show researching than I have in a really, really long while.
2: Yeah, I'd say that apart from The Thing, which I'd seen a lot of times since I first saw it, uh, many of his movies I hadn't watched again, sometimes because they're a little bit scary, like <laughs> yeah. Halloween, which I finally got around to watching. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, John Carpenter is incredible because he's a director, he's a screenwriter, he's a producer, he's an editor, he's a composer. He's worked across several different genres, but of course he's known for his horror work and his sci-fi work. He's very, very influential, I mean, you can see when Hollywood has remade many of his films, but um, his version is always better. The font at the start of the movies, it's very John Carpenter. The score that's so familiar, he's great.
1: And it's also like before every movie after Halloween, it's always... John Carpenter's The Fox. Yeah. John Carpenter's The, the thing. thing. John Carpenter's <laughs> Escape from New York. And for a good, good long run there, he was on a roll, I mean, uh, doing a movie every year. And like you said, doing, wearing so many hats. Yeah. And still just maintaining such a great quality of filmmaking. And I know you'll love this aspect of it too. He was also one of the first champions of independent film.
2: Yeah. You know,
1: Dark, Dark Star, uh, uh, definitely Assault of Precinct 13. Halloween. And Halloween was an independent movie.
2: Oh yeah, very influential independent movie. And I like that he doesn't just make scary movies for the quick, you know, thrills and scares. He actually has comments on society during his films, and they're deeper than that. Do you take me seriously in this week?
1: <laughs> I do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Jeremy Saulnier, who just did Blue Ruin and Green Room, he's a great new up-and-coming genre director, he says that John Carpenter's films had Something to say about society, and we're deeper than just the found footage massacres that make me want to walk out of the theaters and vomit. I mean, he's (laughs) a director who's able to keep you up at night and uh, not in a cheap way.
1: But you know, you talk about his influence, some of his influence is obvious, especially when you look at how a character like Michael Myers gave birth to Freddie and to Jason and all those characters, even Chucky to an extent. But, you know, so many of his films are cult classics, Mm -hmm. like Dark Star, Precinct 13, The Fog, Christine, and it's what an incredible range that he could do horror, he could do sci-fi, he could do thrillers, and that he could do a movie as mainstream and as broad as Starman.
2: Yeah. A movie that really doesn't sweet. Even,
1: it's a sweet, lovely film. It's a it's a very moving film. It doesn't even feel like a John Carpenter movie. Not that that's there's anything wrong with that, no. but it's a great film.
2: I thought Kurt Russell sums it up best. His his good mate Kurt Russell says he sees the world slightly askew. That's <laughs> true. And you can also see his influences that come from Westerns a lot of the time. And he hasn't really made an out and out western, but many of them have those elements in it.
1: And he always he always goes to the beat of his own drum. He does moves that he wants to make and he even said and i quote i don't want to be in the mainstream i don't want to be i want to be an individual i want to wear my films uh, uh, i I want each of my films as a badge of pride that's why i charge all of my bad reviews if critics start liking my movies then i'm in trouble yeah but uh, this these movies that we're talking about today and we we couldn't jam them all into our fast five we have a pretty awesome fast five for john carpenter oh yes
2: it was hard to
1: choose well i mean what a a incredible career Mm -hmm. a bizarre a bizarre career of haunting body of work Mm -hmm. and an incredible wonderful life and that is our cue to
0: roll the video (laughs) screenwriter producer editor director composer legend A man of many hats, John Howard Carpenter was born on January 16, 1948 in Carthage, New York, to parents Milton Jean and Howard Ralph Carpenter, a music professor. Captivated by movies from an early age and ranging from the westerns of Howard Hawks and John Ford to sci-fi staples like The Thing from Another World and Forbidden Planet, Carpenter started filming horror shorts on his 8mm camera before entering high school. Carpenter briefly attended Western Kentucky University before transferring to the University of Southern California's School of Cinematic Arts in 1968, but soon dropped to devote his time to making movies. His first major film was 1974's Dark Star, which cost just $60,000 to make and showcased Carpenter's talents as a multitasker as he wrote, produced, edited, and scored it in addition to directing. Following 1976 assault on Precinct 13, Carpenter really broke through as a visionary filmmaker with 1978's Halloween. The groundbreaking slasher pick cost just $320,000 to make but grossed over $65 million, making it one of the most successful independent films of all time. That propelled Carpenter to tremendous critical and commercial success in the decade that followed, thanks to classics like Escape from New York, The Thing, Starman, and They Live. I'm wow. just
2: going to keep this knife over here
0: Don't away worry. from
2: you and that mask. As
1: long as the mask is off, <laughs> Lee, she got nothing to worry about. And
2: I'm pure and innocent, so I have nothing to worry about. Yeah,
1: you have Ding. nothing to worry about. Ding. Ding. That music that music. oh my gosh i mean tell me you're watching the movie right and long after the movie's over you're still not thinking about that music
2: i love the music as well it scares me and it's also really fun to listen to i kind of want to have it on in my car as i'm driving home
1: just to, to sort of stay in the mood for halloween right
2: yeah but that is the perfect segue into first blood because my first blood was probably similar to yours halloween okay
1: let's hear yours
2: I was a teenager. It was at a sleepover with my friends, uh, again, on VHS. Yeah. Um, we always used to watch scary movies. One of my friend's moms used to let us hire scary movies, whereas I, I didn't really do much of that at home because I knew I was scared by them. But I never wanted to be the big scaredy cat, so I would always be there just watching and trying not to show my fear. I was terrified by this film and because of that it has been, you know, 15 something years since I've seen it again. Did recently. you throw up? I didn't throw up this time, <laughs> but I didn't sleep and it was it was difficult because everyone else, my friends were like, we're not going to sleep either, we're going to stay up all night and then I was the only one who actually stayed up all night. So I felt a bit ill. But I didn't throw up. Yay!
1: So when you walked away from your friends, did you say, <laughs> "I'll be right back"?
2: No, I did not. <laughs> okay, good. And Bill Callahan, who's watching, says, "That's not a knife. <laughs> this is a knife.
1: This is a knife.
2: It's <laughs> a knife." Uh, so your experience with Halloween. My
1: experience with Halloween was like yours. It was Halloween. And it was on Halloween in 1978, like a few days after the movie opened. And no, I did not go with my parents, (laughs) but I did go with my brother. And I was nine years old. And this is like the real... First, no, actually, it's not the first scary movie I ever saw. The first scary movie I ever saw was The Exorcist, but this definitely scared the the, the hell the out be- of me. Jesus. The Bejesus. The Bejesus. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. But it was yeah. just yeah. unlike anything I'd ever seen. I mean, the only other comparable slasher film that I could think of, and it's not really a slasher film, is Psycho
2: yeah i and there are a lot of similarities we'll get to that yes, but we will. particularly with the casting i would say definitely but it genuinely. was the music
1: it was the music that that whenever i heard that music because the movie turned out to be such a huge huge hit over time that whenever you heard the music it immediately took me back and i was scared like crazy
2: well that brings us to the right stuff um Oh yeah, I've skipped ahead. But. That's
1: okay, we can talk about our right stuff. <laughs> our
2: right stuff I had written down. Rewatching these movies, and this is appropriate for one of the films we're going to be talking about, but rewatching them, I was struck by in They Live, oh, okay. which I hadn't seen They Live in a long time. I love the scene when he puts on the sunglasses for the first time. That's great. And sees the real world underneath. I like how it's black and white. Obey. Obey. And then, of course, you know, that became very popular with street art. Um, the, the faces on the people. And I thought because it was so simple, it was so lo-fi effects. It kind of felt a bit like a, a Hitchcock or a Kubrick or something that they would do in the fifties, like a, a classic movie or maybe one of those classic sci-fi movies. Definitely. And I liked the way he played it, Roddy Piper. I thought he was great at like being shocked and that concept could have been silly magic sunglasses but, but it worked so well
1: uh we'll talk more it's about creepy. that film soon but that is definitely a great scene one that stands out and one of the reasons why i couldn't wait to re-watch they live yeah but my right stuff my favorite scene from a john carpenter film goes back to 1982's the thing and we'll be talking about this with one of our special guests on today's profiles Ooh, yeah the scene with the blood test oh that yeah. movie is just so Tense. intense <laughs> and scary and disturbing and gross and holds up. It's such a great paranoid thriller. thriller. But when they're all tied up and they're trying to, you know, uh, Kurt Russell is trying to figure out who the thing is by putting a hot wire into the blood taken by each person and then he puts. The wire into the blood and the blood jumps out. Yeah. Because that was the alien. That was the thing. Yeah. And then and then the guy starts changing and everybody's like, get, get, you know, free me get. It is is so, so terrifying, and the, the flame flamethrower isn't working. It is it is such a That's hard movie to watch scene. for all the right reasons.
2: Alright, well let's now get into our fast five. Number
1: five is I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. <laughs> And I'm all out of bubble. Come on, give me yeah. a high five for that one. That is a great line. They live. They do live and they did back on November 4th, 1988. Cost 3 million to make box office 13. Doesn't sound like a lot, but the movie has definitely turned into a classic over time. I saw this movie when I was a sophomore at Penn State and I was drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Really drunk. And this movie was really freaky. Try watching this movie drunk. It'd
2: also be really fun because it's fun to watch (laughs) as well. There's some great humorous moments in there. Of course, starring the late, great Roddy Piper. But yeah, as a paper. nameless drifter, he's called John Nada in the credits, but never actually has a name during it. Like we were saying before, it's had a huge impact on street art. Uh, Shepard Fairey, who's a street artist, used the obey in all his work, and then later on for Obama's political campaign,
4: yeah, uh, there was
2: that shot-for-shot shot remake that they did uh, in South Park, yeah. in South Park, <laughs> which was really funny. And as we were saying before, I mean, trust John Car- Carpenter to take a plot or a conceit that seems ridiculous and make it very real, very rich. A lot of comments on society in there Lots. and just so much to it.
1: There is a lot to it. This is based on a short story called eight o'clock in the morning by Ray Nelson, uh, an allegory for George Orwell's 1984 close, but this was really a reflection of John Carpenter's distaste for Reaganomics mm-hmm. and the commercialization of pop culture and politics. Definitely. Carpenter's strongest smoothie with a statement. Yeah. And uh, definitely one that has held up over time. Also, the best use of sunglasses, I would say, since Risky Business.
2: (laughs) And one of the best... Fight scenes oh, yeah, in a movie ever that uh-huh. Roddy Piper versus Keith David goes for what it goes for like five minutes. Yeah, it keeps going, no score, and it just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going.
1: You're right, there's no score. There's no
2: score. So when you're watching it, I was just like, put on the sunglasses, just put on the sunglasses, just put on because it just it just gets like crazier and crazier, and then eventually. But of course, you believe Roddy Piper because he's a wrestler. He was not a professional actor, but he had that brawn behind him, and I thought he also did a great job acting in this film he was
1: great he was definitely great and the, the, the other thing about this movie and other john carpenter films is i've really noticed re-watching a lot of these movies how much setup he puts a lot of time into developing his characters developing the story making fully realized characters and they they live as no exception to that mm-hmm. he does not put on the sunglasses until 32 minutes in
2: wow yeah and when
1: that happens you're just like whoa, what is going That's on here? That's pretty heavy,
2: <laughs> homeless guys trying to make a living, you know. And on the Blu-ray extra features, John Carpenter was asked – if he thought about cutting down that fight scene and he simply said, F no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's very, very cool. Love that. Well, uh, John Carpenter also said that They Live was made as a response to the Reagan years. Everything we see is designed to sell something. The only thing they want to do is take our money. And Jay Carr, the film critic for the Boston Globe, loved They Live and said as a sci-fi horror comedy, They Live, with its wake-up call to the world, is in a class with the Terminator and Robocop.
2: It feels ahead of its time doesn't it? It does. And Timothy Husak says, not only do I think that They Live is Mr. Carpenter's most underrated film, it is quite simply one of the most underrated films in movie history. It has a great premise, never trust your government, and consumerism. The fact that you can only see the world for what it really is by putting on these sunglasses is something I have not seen in another film since. Carpenter's direction is brilliant as always, and he gets a great acting performance out of the late, great Roddy Rowdy Piper. Mm -hmm. Keith David is... Equally magnificent as he, just like Kurt Russell, is a staple of Carpenter's films.
1: And Aaron Turner, a profiler, says they live. Probably Carpenter's most underrated film. He takes a sci-fi genius and makes a commentary on societal issues. Plus, the fight scene is great with the late Roddy Piper and Keith David. Everyone loves the fight scene and everyone thinks this movie is underrated, which it is. Yeah,
2: Lawrence Fitzsimmons on YouTube says one of the best fight scenes of all time. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's so, so great. Well, listen, you know, learned a lot of things here today doing profiles on on John Carpenter, a lot of things doing the research. For example, did you know, I can you imagine these movies, he turned down the chance to direct Fatal Attraction. This was my quiz show question. <laughs> oh,
2: no! Well, let me guess. You're going to say Top Gun? Yes! You're going to say Zombieland?
1: I was not going to say Zombieland. There you go. That's another one. That was another one he turned yeah. down?
2: Yeah.
1: Oh, man. <laughs> that's right. You know, maybe should, we should script the quiz show this week. Uh,
2: yeah, I think so. <laughs> All right. Then
1: we'll, we'll move on from I that one. I think so. Uh, what do you got from me? Well,
2: did you know that John Carpenter appears in a couple of his own movies under the name Rip Height, The Fog, Village of the Damned, Um, and Starman as well.
1: He's in Starman?
2: Yeah. And I think he's also in The Thing, too, like briefly.
1: Well, I know that the voice, the voice in They Live that says sleep, 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 that's him. Oh,
2: that's cool. That's
1: very, very cool. His five favorite movies of all time. I mean, it might be different now, but at the time when John Carpenter was asked, his five favorite movies ever, Only Angels Have Wings, Mm -hmm. Rio Bravo, Blow Up, Vertigo, and Citizen Kane
2: oh don't say it. I'm not saying Citizen it. Kane I would I, I thought he'd have like the quiet man or the searchers there or too. psycho psycho but that is that's really interesting if he doesn't like doing sequels. Escape from LA was his only exception. He wrote Halloween two, but refused to direct it, saying he didn't want to direct the same movie again.
1: Oh, I didn't know he wrote it. Yeah. Interesting. Well also, you know, he has a son named Cody Carpenter with yes. Adrian Barbeau, who they were married from nineteen seventy-nine to nineteen eighty four. She made her feature film debut in the fog and gave an amazing performance in that movie. Time now for some business that we always, <laughs> always have to take care of on profiles because this is really important. As you know, or maybe you don't, but you will now, make sure you go to iTunes and subscribe to profiles. Subscribe to profiles and very important, rate and review us on iTunes. We need those ratings of reviews to survive. We've been sort of a, dropped off a little bit with the ratings of reviews lately, so let's pick that back up again.
2: Or else. Or else.
1: <laughs> <laughs> make sure you go to youtube.com. Backslash popcorn talk network. Subscribe to our video and make sure you share it with everyone, all your film friends. Make sure you tell your film friends to share it with others. Let's like make profiles go viral. Yeah. And Alicia just uploaded a bunch of brand spanking new profiles t shirts. Yes. To the T public store. So make sure you go to tpublic.com backslash user backslash profiles uh-huh. lots of very 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 cool profiles I bought a t-shirts bunch. I bought four you bought four yeah. oh that's so cool <laughs> I gotta I got to go on there Yeah. also very important go to our Facebook page our Facebook page is profiles with Malone and Mance this is a very active and fun website you'll find out first who our next profile is you can weigh in on your favorite movies we read the comments on the air as you see we do these brackets where you pick your favorite character your favorite movie your favorite scenes so make sure you go to profiles with Malone and Mance, like our Facebook page. Make sure you like it. And definitely, last but certainly not least, follow us on Twitter at Alicia Malone, at MovieMance, at Alicia Malone, at MovieMance. (laughs) At Alicia, at Movie Man. Of course, Mance. you need to like, <sighs> 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 Few people pause. saying they think you should put
2: the mask back on. So <coughs> I don't know about that. And <laughs> hi to Cobster, who is watching live. Our friend Cobster, who does a great podcast called Horrorflix. So this is his jam. He says Carpenter also directed reshoots for Halloween too.
1: Well, make sure, can. Copster, what's a guy got to do to get on your podcast? I'm asking you right now. Yeah, front of everybody. Come on, Copster. What do you got to get some ants? I'll bring you pizza. Moving <laughs> right. on well, with our show. Going. Let's keep on going with number four on our Fast Five. Which is? I don't give a fuck about your war or your president. <laughs> Uh, Escape Escape from from New New York. York. Great movie. Released July 10th, 1981. Cost 6 million to make. A big budget for John Carpenter at that time. Big budget for any movie at that time. Box office was $25 million. Wildly imaginative film. Another film that was very influential and I didn't realize how influential it was until I went back and watched it again.
2: It's true. I mean, at, at the center of it has this great anti hero, Snake Plissken, so cool, played by Kurt Russell, of course. Uh, he's kind of like a Western cowboy amongst this world. Um, I like that he wrote the film back in the 1970s as a reaction to the Watergate scandal, but even when you watch it now, it, it holds up. It feels very true, and it feels very present day, even yeah, though it, it is also of its time. feels like a Western in many anyways and as you said this was carpenter's first large-scale production it showed what he could do with some money behind him
1: well you know so i'm watching escape from new york and i'm thinking boy this movie looks like a lot uh, between the wardrobe and the production design a movie that came out the following year a movie that that i love blade runner
2: blade runner i also was even thinking like more recent film the purge
1: the purge okay feels very that does feel very much like escape Escape from from new New York. york But with Blade Runner, you know, the, the, the costume design, the production values, the way it was so dark. Yeah. So then I'm, I'm doing a little more research and I, and I read that the model of the city of New York was repainted and reused for Blade Runner.
2: There you go. So
1: there's something How's there. How's
2: that feel? And it's got that classic plot of, you know, man on a mission with a ticking clock. Literally, (laughs) a (laughs) A very, very bleak world, a badass protagonist and comments on society and distrusting the government. I like the president character.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Donald Pleasance, Uh, you know, the maximum security prison, Manhattan, 1997. Once you go in, you don't come out. Those are the rules. Uh, And I'll tell you the scene where I mean, you don't really see Air Force One crash into a building. But knowing that a plane is crashing into a building in New York. You know, it was a little unnerving to watch because of obviously nine eleven. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's 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 such a great movie. It's a cult classic. It's a mainstream classic. And the eye patch <laughs> was suggested by Kurt Russell.
2: And it just made the character so iconic it did. straight away. It's um, I mean, it's a pretty dark movie. Not that many special effects in there. Great widescreen cinematography, which he's known for. But some real fleshed out, interesting characters uh, with some humor. Some a lot of humor, of humor. Sure. So, Carpenter brought on his friend Nick Castle to add some humor to the script. The studios wanted Charles Bronson or, you know, Tommy Lee Jones to play Snake, and John said, No, I want Kurt Russell. Well,
1: the, the, he wasn't a
2: big star at that point.
1: Well, they also... No, he wasn't. And you know what? Escape from New York, now that I think about it, was a, was a game changer for Kurt Russell. Because even though he had done Elvis, the TV miniseries, which was directed by John Carpenter a couple of years earlier, you know, I thought of Kurt Russell as, like, the, the Disney boy from, like, the computer wore tennis shoes. <laughs> really, yeah. You know? So this was, like, a big thing to see him in such a gritty, dark, badass wow. kind of role. So cool. But he was so good. You know, it was... Snake, Snake Plissken was actually based on Clint Eastwood. Who turned it down. Yeah. But you can see. You can
2: see that. that snarl. Yeah,
1: that's a gruff. Yeah, that's the gruff snarl. Uh, Time Magazine loved the film. It said, John Carpenter's offering a summer moviegoer a rare opportunity to escape the air-conditioned torpor of ordinary entertainment into the hothouse humidity of their own paranoia. It's a trip worth taking.
2: Well, uh, Morgan Robinson says, I had only watched Escape from New York for the first time a few months ago after watching many Carpenter films before it, and I can't understand why it took me so long. Easily one of the best and most entertaining action films I've seen. Kurt Russell is incredible as the legendary Snake Plissken, a character that will go down in movie history. It is a wonderful, mesmerizing film that you can't take your eyes off. I also like that it's set in some bizarre version of 1997. Strangely enough, the year I was born, Hashtag Film Geek Hashtag Profile for Life Hashtag Carpenter, Carpenter is a, a genius. genius
1: Very, very cool Love that Well, you know, how awesome is it, Leash, when we get to interview We get to talk to these people From the
2: movies From the
1: movies for our little show
2: It's amazing It I is love amazing
1: it. So we had not one, but two great guests from Profiles talking about John Carpenter Our first She starred in The Fog, her feature film debut, and she was also part of the ensemble in Escape from New York. Here is the conversation part one with Adrian Barbeau. And joining us right now on Profiles is Adrian Barbeau. It is so great. Thank you so much for calling in to talk with us about John Carpenter on Profiles and on your films, The Fog and Escape from New York. You're on with Scott and Alicia.
4: Well, I'm glad to be talking about John.
1: (laughs) Well, looking at his films, I mean,
2: he's definitely someone you think of when you think of Halloween (laughs) and sci-fi and horror. In your opinion, what makes him such an influential filmmaker?
4: I think if you ask John, he had one intent when when he began his career, and that was to elicit and a visceral reaction from his audiences he wasn't interested in making them think or in changing their political viewpoints or, or anything else like that he wanted to make them feel and he certainly has accomplished that with all of his films actually i'm a huge hit of uh, i'm a huge fan of two of his films which did not fall in the ho- uh, horror genre I loved what John did with uh, the miniseries Elvis.
1: Oh, yeah. Mm. With
4: Kurt Russell playing Elvis. And then my other all-time favorite of his is um, Starman yes. with Jeff Bridges. It's so and beautiful. those don't fall into the the horror genre, certainly, but... Uh, He's just as brilliant with those as he is with Halloween and the Fog and Escape and all of the ones that came after.
1: You know, I remember when I saw Starman in 1984, how, how, you know, and and I was, I guess, 15 at the time. I couldn't believe that it was directed by John Carpenter because he had done so many movies extremely well in the genre. And like you said, it was such a it was such an accomplished movie that was really outside the box for him. To watch his evolution as a filmmaker was really really extraordinary. It must have been great to 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 watch his movies at that time too.
4: Yes, it was. And I don't know if you get a chance, uh, you know, find the um, the DVD to the miniseries of Elvis. And see what he did there, and that was in the way in the early days.
1: I remember I saw that. Yeah, it was it was a miniseries on TV, and uh, Kurt Russell was. <laughs> I still think of Elvis, uh, Kurt Russell when I think of Elvis. So that's yes. how effective he yes. was in that movie. Yeah,
2: he's <laughs> great. He's always great.
1: But you know, the fog, the fog was uh, John Carpenter's first movie after Halloween, his first feature, and in between that time, he had done the Elvis miniseries. But like, do you, did you get the sense that he felt like a? a a creative surge, like some freedom after the success of Halloween, because that movie was such a huge hit that it just gave, more, it gave him more confidence to take chances while making that movie, The Fog?
4: You know, that's, that's a question you're going to have to put to him. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I just know, um, you know, uh, I really don't know. <laughs> we, had, we had worked together before The Fog uh, on Someone's Watching Me, which was originally entitled high-rise and that was um... another film that not everyone knows about out of uh, john's uh, body of work and and sort of a, a not a horror film more of a a thriller with uh, lauren hutton and david burney uh... that was his first i believe he would say that was his first studio film shot that for warner brothers if i remember correctly and so, you know, he was working in the confines of the unions and the studio and all of that. I I don't know what he was thinking when when, when we started <laughs> The Fog. He just wanted to make, you know, a great movie.
2: Well, you in The Fog, you actually spend a lot of the screen time on your own. How challenging was that for you as an actress?
4: Um, I had the benefit of having had Stevie Wayne written for me basically yeah. I mean, you know john knew me and uh he knew the kinds of characters i i portrayed and he was attracted to those kinds of characters and uh, so he basically wrote stevie with me in mind and so um i never really thought about uh the fact that i was alone most of the time <laughs> um Once I found her voice, and I mean, she's a disc jockey. It's the same thing you guys are doing to a certain extent. You're not really alone. You've got the microphone there, and you've got an entire audience that you're reaching out to. So (laughs) that wasn't the challenging part. uh, The challenging part was getting down to the lighthouse when (laughs) the winds were 45 knots. And uh, the uh, National Park Service was threatening to shut us down because it was so dangerous. (laughs)
1: <laughs> wow wow yeah it did look there's one scene in the film you know one of the benefits of doing the show Adrian, is that Alicia and I go back and we, we watch all these movies that we haven't seen in a long time and just the other day when I was watching The Fog I was like wow that looks like a a windy area you have to go down all those stairs to get to the lighthouse like that's a schlep <laughs>
4: it's just, it was a schlep it was a real schlep for our poor camera crew you know who had to carry that camera down I think it was 345 steps
1: Wow, wow! And
4: um, in terms of of working with John, and and uh, you know, people ask, um, uh, you know, what was it like to be directed by him? Well, I had been directed by him already in uh, Someone's Watching Me, and I think maybe because he knew me so well, and and he had written Stevie with me in mind, there was only one one time on the set when we had a difference of opinion uh you know a directorial difference of opinion director actor <laughs> when uh, we got ready to do the ce- a scene oh i think it was right when the uh the piece of driftwood you know goes up in flames or something and and john said okay sit down and we'll do the scene and i said sit down oh john i don't think she'd sit down i think she's way too You know, nervous or upset or, or, you know, traumatized by what just happened. And he said, Okay, stand up and we'll do the scene. That (laughs) was about the only time we ever had a difference of opinion.
1: Wow.
2: And then you made the jump from the fog to Escape from New York the following year. How was that? How different were the two sets?
4: Oh, well, very different. Um, First of all, we were shooting, it was a, it was, um, Escape from New York was mostly a night shoot, and it was in St. Louis. It was very the uh, it was very hot,
0: oh, wow. and
4: um, it, it was a totally different type of shoot. John also had more money to spend, and um, and a bigger cast and bigger crew that he was working with. So, making the fog was it was. Sort of like a, a family you know in a wonderful location, and <laughs> just having a great time. It was a great time on escape, but it was much it was much more challenging, especially for him it was it was hard mm.
1: yeah I mean Escape from New York is another film that we rewatched and and that came out in one thousand nine hundred and eighty one and the like so many films that followed were influenced by Escape from New York, specifically Blade Runner, which came out the following year. But while you were making Escape from New York, did you get the sense, that, did you feel like this was going to be a special movie, one that was going to be a hit and one that was going to be regarded as a classic? I mean, that's kind of hard to see unless you have hindsight. But
4: <laughs> I did not. I mean, I, it was, you know, it was – no. I, I, I don't know if, if John did. You'd have to ask him. But <laughs> I certainly never realized any of the films that we did <laughs> in the 80s would, you know, here we are in 2015 and people are still saying, oh, I watched The Fog once a month and Escape from New York is my favorite movie. And, uh, <laughs> um, no, had no idea. I mean, we were making a movie.
2: Yeah. What
4: was That's it? All, you know, you try and do the best you, very best you can. And, Um, The thing that I find fascinating about watching Escape Now, I've seen little bits and pieces over the years, is how right he got so much of the stuff in terms of it being 1997. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that he really didn't call correctly was um, miniaturization of the iPhones. (laughs) Instead, (laughs) he goes to go, you know, (laughs) we were walking around with those big, they were cell phones. But they were about six times the size no. of, a, of a regular phone at that time.
2: I just love watching that film and, and seeing Kurt Russell in that role, Snake. Such an iconic character. What was Kurt like to work with on set?
4: Oh, Kurt is fantastic. Uh, I mean, I knew him because John had directed him in Elvis, and, and you know we were social friends and. Uh, But he's fantastic. Everybody was. Donald Pleasance was one of the funniest men I'd ever worked with in my life. Uh (laughs) And uh, it was just a great group of of actors. All of them. All of them. But Kurt, Kurt, you know, he's so, he's just.
3: The man, <laughs> he's cool. He is
1: definitely the man, one I like of the best him. anti-heroes in movie it's history. Great. Yeah, you know when when we're looking at the movies that John Carpenter directed, that he edited, that he produced, that he wrote, and he scored, he composed the music for films like The Fog and Escape from New York. I mean, I know you're, I know you're probably going to say you have to talk to him, but <laughs> in your opinion, how the heck did he find the time to do all this, especially compose a score and still just? maintain such a quality of filmmaking. It's, it's it's incredible.
4: Well, how did he find the time? <laughs> he, did, he, worked, he worked long hours. And, um, you know, I think he started out uh, scoring his films almost in self-defense because <laughs> he could do it cheaper and, uh, and he soon became aware that he could do it better than... Uh, than anybody he might be hiring. And um, I don't know if you know it, but he's he just released an album with our son, uh, Cody Carpenter, and Daniel Davies, w- helping him, uh, called The Lost Tracks. And it went to number one on the electronic uh, charts for, uh, on Billboard. Wow. Amazing. And, that is amazing. And uh, I think they're now working on another one, and they're going to be doing some touring.
3: Yeah, oh, I saw so
0: something cool. about I mean, John, Iceland. You
4: know, John, I think he probably started playing music even before he picked up a, 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 a camera, when he, he, and he picked up a camera when he was eight. <laughs> so uh, it, it, he, he knows how to do that.
2: Yeah, well, we think, when you think back to working with John on The Fog and Escape from New York, what are some of your favourite memories of seeing him in action?
1: Hmm. (laughs) You got to ask him. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
4: I I will go back to um, someone's watching me and say that he had an enormous uh, impact on my career. I remember uh, showing up for work that first day, and um, up until that time, I had been... I had done stage. I'd been nominated for a Tony for the role of Rizzo in Greece, and wow. I had done a lot of musical comedies. And then I was doing mod, I was doing, you know, sitcoms, and I had done some TV films, but it was not really the medium that I was the most comfortable in. And um, we shot, we, we, we did a rehearsal for the first scene that I was doing with. Um, I think it was with Lauren on Someone's Watching Me. And John came up to me and he said, uh, that's great. He said, do less. And I (laughs) said, what? He said, just do less. And all of a sudden it was like the proverbial light bulb went off in my head and I thought, oh my gosh, that's it. That's the secret. (laughs) For me, you know, coming from stage and coming from sitcom and coming from tape and all of that, for me to do film he gave me an enormous gift as a director give, to give an actress, uh, which was just that one little hint wow. in how to act for screen. So I do remember that. I remember that very, very clearly. The rest, the fog and escape, all I remember was having a good time. You <laughs> know, I mean, he he keeps a happy set, and it's a joy to go to work, and... Um, you know, he's just, he's one of the best. Well, yes, it is a is. joy
1: to speak with you. And, Adrian, thank you so much. I know that you, uh, uh, you squeezed this phone call in. And we're really, really grateful. Thank yes, you so much for call, talking with us about John Carpenter on Profiles. Thank
2: you. Have Thanks. a thank great, you. great day. <laughs> thank you.
4: Bye-bye.
1: Bye. Bye-bye. She was that, lovely. She was so lovely. That gets a high five. Oh. Very, very good. And a movie that she talked about. Yes, one of our favorites is one of our favorites too. That brings us to number three three on our fast five, which is "Red Light, Stop, Green Light, Go, Yellow Light, Go, Very Fast." You're so good, (laughs) Starman! Such a great line. Released December Fourteenth, nineteen eighty-four. Cost twenty-four million to make. Box office domestic twenty-nine million. Not a big hit, but one oscar nomination for jeff bridges as starman aka scott hayden uh the only john carpenter movie to get an oscar nomination for anything
2: and his most emotional movie yep absolutely. it's heartbreaking it's heartwarming it's intergalactical love story and again another film that maybe on paper might sound a bit silly but it's thanks to the wonderful performances of Jeff Bridges, of Karen Allen and their chemistry together which makes it just so sweet because they play their characters with such earnest and you really believe them. You believe that she is really grieving and then you believe how she slowly comes around and you believe Jeff Bridges. I mean, he is someone who's so familiar to us now um, he's so full of personality himself and he has to tone it right back. But you see his character changing slowly throughout the film and becoming more and more human. I yep. love that.
1: Yeah, he evolves. And Charles Martin Smith was also really great in this movie as the national security guy who's trying to protect him and let him go back to his home planet. Yeah. This movie, not a lot of people know this, and I didn't know until I rewatched it the other day, produced by Michael Douglas. Yeah.
2: I saw which that. was like,
1: what? I know. So I that. he had uh, Columbia made the film. They chose Starman, Columbia did, over E.T. Forcing Steven Spielberg to go to Universal. It worked out great for Spielberg because E.T. turned out to be such a huge hit. Not so much for Starman. The box office was kind of disappointing, but it is a great movie, one that holds up so well and one that, like you said, really does have it all and just shows the evolution of John Carpenter as a filmmaker, that he would go outside of his horror comfort zone to make a movie that is just so rewarding and enthralling and moving and unforgettable and funny and exciting and intense, all the things you said.
2: Yeah, even outside of his sci-fi comfort zone, because the studio wanted more of a straight sci-fi movie, but John wanted to focus on the central relationship, show another side to himself, and it it, it really gets you. I mean, it just shows you that John is such a skilled director, because he can make you cry, and he can make you scream. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he can make you scared, and he can make you feel something. He, he's great. And Roger Ebert, our good friend, Yay. pretend friend, that we <laughs> love to read his reviews, because he always got it so right. He says, all this seems like a setup for a science fiction movie, but what's interesting is the way the director, John Carpenter, makes a U-turn, and treats Starman like a road movie.
1: Yeah, it is, is a road is very trip true. movie. Yeah, it's a And it's got a beautiful score by Jack Nietzsche. Towns, a little like Vangelis and Blade Runner. A lot of religious undertones in this movie. The way the Starman brings the deer back to life. The way he gets Jenny Hayden pregnant and tells her that your baby will be a teacher. I mean, just a lot to really ponder in that. Really, really sweet movie. The New York Times loved it as well saying John Carpenter making his own leap out of the horror genre gives the story a swift pace a crisp look and the kind of logic and, co- and coherence that are welcome
2: well francisco on youtube says the dude an alien i gotta see it oh that's and, great yeah and then people saying it actually timothy hughes access starman does really hold up
1: it does hold up. And so do a lot of the movies that didn't quite make our Fast Five. And the others. And the others. A movie that I really liked a lot. 1983 is Christine. One of the better movies in general to be based on a Stephen King novel. Uh, I would say it's second next to The Shining as one of the better Stephen King adaptations. Slow build. Very intense. And I love that scene where Christine repairs herself. It's scary. And it's, 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 it's a very good movie. How about you?
2: One I rewatched fairly recently was Assault on Precinct 13. Good movie. 1976. Mm-hmm. Uh, He wanted to make a Siege movie inspired by Rio Bravo, by Howard Hawks, with touches of the exploitation films. You can see a bit of touches of, like, zombie films, like The Night of the Living Dead. Great score, once again, still holds up.
1: I love The Fog from 1980. It's just moody and atmospheric. Uh, Really just a good old-fashioned love story, and I love that the movie features both Jamie Lee Curtis and Janet Leigh. Mother and Daughter, Mother together and daughter. in one movie.
2: Big Trouble in Little China! <laughs> ah,
1: man, everyone 1986
2: It can be good fun. I mean, Kurt Russell, once again, he's so charismatic as a center of this. It's, it's outlandish, a little bit silly, but it's his homage to martial arts movies.
1: It's And Nikolai Quack, a profile, says, Big, Big Trouble in Little China has to be one of the most fun movies ever. The greatness of this film starts with Carpenter's genius move to make a character that would otherwise be the bumbling sidekick, uh, the hero, and make him into the the actual hero, make the actual hero the sidekick. It moves along at a brilliant pace combining fantastic action with utterly funny comedy and a great immersive world of Chinese black magic martial arts and not to forget the six demon bag. What's in it you ask? Wind, fire, and all the kinds of things that it makes for a great sci-fi cult classic. Hashtag Film Geek. Hashtag profile Forward Life.
2: I also like Vampires 1998. Some people say that this is the closest John Carpenter's gotten to making a western. It's also a horror film at the same time. And it has James Woods.
1: James Woods. And finally Dark Star from 1974. His feature film debut. Uh, basically I look at this movie as a satire of 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's a space booth, bizarre and very very funny. And uh, what do we have for our brackets? For
2: our brackets this week the profile is led by Steve Zissou did best films of John Carpenter. They voted on these. So it was The Thing versus Big Trouble in Little China, The Thing one. Uh Halloween versus Assault in Precinct 13, uh, Halloween one. So it was Halloween versus The Thing who do you think won the thing yes yes profilers have declared that the, the thing, thing is john carpenter's best, best movie. movie so and don't forget to go to our facebook page
1: they're not the only ones but that brings us to number two in our fast five The
2: what's
3: the book you mean? as a matter of fact
1: it was Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> Man, is this movie hold up. Released December, oh. uh, October 25th, 1978. Cost $320,000 to make. Box office was $65 million worldwide. Shot in 20 days. One of the most... Uh, Profitable films of all time and in addition to being one of the most successful. What a great score that John Carpenter composed in just four days, a score that is just as iconic as the movie itself.
2: Well, you know I don't like horror films, so yes. I left this to rewatch for the last movie. And I hadn't seen it since that time when I was a teenager, and I was still terrified. Yep. The build up, the tension is so perfect. The way the film is shot, the cinematography, those walking shots, you get a feeling that there's always gonna be something around the corner. Michael standing around the corner the score which is all time when he's there or he's round and it just fills you with dread the breathing the breathing the breathing freaked me out the mask the pov through the mask jamie lee Lee curtis was beautiful and introducing introducing (laughs) and i like that because it kind of feels like a meta nod towards psycho which her mum janet lee starred in definitely and so she became then the next generation scream queen this is a landmark horror film i mean if anyone watches halloween for the the first time now they'll think, Well, it has all the tropes of a regular horror it, movie. It created the tro- this is where tropes of it. Started. Like yeah. that I'll be back. I mean you see it in everything from Scream to It Follows recently yeah. felt very John Carpenter.
1: And yeah, you're right. I mean, that's what made this movie just such a trailblazer, a game changer, and it really set the standard for the modern horror film that, that few films had even matched it even to this day, except maybe a movie like Scream because it poked fun at those tropes that you were talking about. Uh, but uh, John Carpenter was very proud to cast Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie, and he just said in a recent interview that when it came to Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, she came into the office, very pretty girl, very nice. Everything came easy to her. The tension, the screams, all that. Fun, fun and easy for her. So I made the right choice. I had a great cast with this movie.
2: And I've gone too blonde with my wig, but I have the shirt, I have the flares. I was watching it last night going, okay, I've got to get this looked down you got so it. we can cosplay. The movie was originally titled The Babysitter Mur- Murders, and it has a very simple story. But what elevates it is the cinematography, is the editing, is that score, is the acting. I mean, this is – it's hard to describe how – Influential It is. Ebert said, Halloween is a visceral experience. We aren't seeing the movie. We're having it happen to us. It's frightening.
1: And he continues that quote because I pulled it too. If you don't like scary movies, then don't see this one. Uh, Yeah. Uh, You know, a lot of people have written since then that the movie is an allegory for the virtue of sexual purity and the danger of casual sex.
2: Yeah, because it's, well, it's every time they get naked. But
1: John Carpenter c- comes back and says, Nope, it's just true class exploitation, a film that I would love to have seen as a kid.
2: I love that. And Trevor Gotereau, hopefully I said that correctly, says, <laughs> Halloween will always have a special place to me because it was filmed in my area. Oh, <laughs> Go and want to walk down the street. When I was really young, everyone older than me told me about how this amazing horror film was filmed in their hometown when they were growing up. I eventually saw it and fell in love with it. For the past few years, on every Halloween, me and my buddy, who is deathly afraid of horror movies, walk around to the various locations around town with the Halloween theme playing
1: that's pretty cool oh that's scary how fun would that be
2: interesting that they're watching um the thing from another world in halloween yes which we will get to
1: we'll get to we'll kind of get to it right now because that brings us to the conversation part two uh with keith david who co-starred in our number five movie they live and our number one film which we'll get to you probably guess what it is but here is the conversation (laughs) with keith david And joining us right now for Profiles' John Carpenter is Keith David. Keith David made his feature film debut in The Thing, worked with John Carpenter again on They Live. Keith, you are on Profiles with Scott and Alicia. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: How are you?
2: Great. Doing so well. So excited to talk to you and so excited to be talking about John Carpenter, particularly this time of year. It's perfect for it. (laughs) But in your opinion, what? Makes John Carpenter such a unique director.
3: Um, well, I mean, one of the things is his uh, his extremely vivid imagination. Yes. <laughs> I once, asked, um, when we were doing, they live. I asked him, "Where did he get the inspiration for the monsters?" And he said he dreamt about it one night. And I said, "Well, I wouldn't want to be a you." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, those, uh, those, you know, when I saw. You know the makeup for those um, creatures, or whatever they were. They they were like scary. So I was like, "Wow, you dreamt about that?" Don't <laughs> so, know. But uh, you know, I've always found, you know, I found uh, when I first worked with him in the thing, John's a very, very visual guy, uh, in my estimation. And you know, if you, if you were if you were looking at either movie that I've been in. Uh, but, you know, a lot of his movies, if you, if you were this, you can get a big sense of what the movie's about. And I think that that's important. I think that that's, a, that's one of the signs of a great
1: director. Well, you made your feature film debut on The Thing. I mean, of all the movies to, to jump in on, I mean, it's such a wildly imaginative film. You know, what do you remember about the first time you met John Carpenter? What was your first impression of him?
3: Well, let me say that the, the first time that we, uh, the first time that we sat and talked, I mean, I, I you know, we, we we had been rehearsing for um, we've been rehearsing for about a week, I guess, and um, before we started filming, he brought each one of us into the into his office to talk a little bit, and um, I I had the great sense that he knew exactly what he wanted to. And, uh, you know, wonder you know, um, if he could help us get to, uh, um, what it is that he wanted emotionally, you know, and, and, uh, you know, when you're working, when you're working with, we had a wonderful cast, a really fantastic veteran cast, uh, most of which had been on stage at some time. So... People knew how to work, and so it made his job that much easier. Um, and and I thought he was quite um, receptive to ideas and uh, and collaboration. So that was a that was a really a great gift, especially for my first movie, because I you know I'd never I had never been on film like that. And uh, as a matter of fact, I had just. I had literally just come from a summer of speech teacher training.
1: Oh, boy. <laughs>
3: and and I, I was afraid that I, was, I wasn't going to be able to uh, adapt so readily to a guy who was just a regular guy.
2: Mm. Uh,
3: but, uh, you know, again, uh, another sign of a great director. Yeah. I think John was wonderful. I think John was really wonderful at this. Was I think a, a really great director it sets up the situation where the actors don't have to act. We can just find the behavior of the character. Oh, yeah. And I think John did that quite wonderfully.
2: And what was it like when you're working on the thing with such uh, elaborate special effects and and some cool props and everything that was going on in terms of visual effects? How did John help you in that area?
3: Well, it was fascinating. I mean, you know, I I had no idea how they did all that stuff. and Rob Boutin... Was uh, just brilliant. I mean, uh, I, I do remember quite vividly the first time that we saw the creature that had been burned and maimed and welded together and all that, and after smearing it with goop and all this kind of stuff, and you huh. know, it suddenly it suddenly um, took on a whole another quality as we were standing around that you know that lab table examining it and it was quite it was quite fun it was, you know but it, you know it was like uh, a lot of it you know uh, was like um, you know a big improv class because you a lot of the visual in fact most of the visual effects the animation of the visual effects we didn't see so we had to imagine and John would set us up for example when the when the uh when the chest opened up
1: oh, wow
3: and chopped off his hands. You know, we didn't we didn't see that but we but we had we had a guy and we had the prosthetic hands and and all that all that uh special effect stuff that we we got to see that we got to see the reaction but we didn't get to see the actual visual effect as it happened in the movie and that was fascinating.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. I mean,
3: it was fascinating it was fascinating to see it in the process in the studio. But I spent when I you know uh, when I first saw the movie, I was on a job, a theater job in Pittsburgh, so I got I got to see the movie almost by myself. I invited a couple of guys that I was working with, and I spent the almost the entire movie like slunk under my seat because I couldn't. I I was like. Wow,
2: this is what we were supposed
1: to be seeing. Oh, <laughs> scary stuff. Well, you know, we, we go back, Keith. We go back and we rewatch all the movies that we're going to talk about. And when we went back and we rewatched the thing, it is mind blowing how a scary it is, how how b how great the special effects still are, and just see how it's really gained a big following over time. When it came out in 1982 came out the same month as like Rathicon and ET Poltergeist. But why do you think it really caught on over time? Why do you think it gained such a huge following?
3: I in my humble opinion, uh it was because uh we came out I think we opened in, we opened in July. Uh it was, you know, right around the same time as Poltergeist as you said the Rathicon, but you know, um, and I hope that was a movie that came out. Um, it was poltergeist, and there was another... Blade Runner. Blade Runner.
1: E.T. Crazy okay. Well, he, so You know, crazy. I mean, at
3: the, at the time, E.T. Had, had opened weeks before, but it was still number one in the box office. Yeah. For, you know, for forever. <laughs> uh, in my opinion, we opened at the wrong time. To me, it was in October... November movie, and if we had opened, I think we would have done better initially if we would have opened later in the year. But that wasn't my call to make. (laughs) Uh, And you know, of course, when we opened, it got it got it got mixed reviews, and uh, and E. T. was still overshadowing everything. Yeah, Uh, but but it was. I think, and it still is a great movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, over time, as people got to got to got to watch it over, because it you know because it didn't do that great in the theater initially, you know they take them out they take them out of the theaters. So, but as people started catching up DVDs and all that other kind of thing, you know, and you know, seeing it on uh, in other other venues, it it was a groundswell of of cult following. I mean, so much so that we, you know, we, you know, I still go to conventions, and people look for the thing, and I sign a lot of autographs <laughs> for uh, for the thing. I mean, it, you know, it 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 turned out to be a, you know, phenomenal movie.
2: Yeah, definitely. I, I still love watching it, even though it scares me. Uh, six <laughs> years later, though, you got to work again with John Cumter on They Live, and you got to work with the late, great Roddy Piper. Everyone talks about how wonderful a guy he was. Uh, what was it like working with Roddy?
3: Oh, it, it was a joy. I mean, Roddy was a wonderful man. He really was. Uh, uh, he really was a great man. And everything that people say about him, it's true. He was just, he was a joy to work with. He was, uh, you know, just a, the friendliest guy that I that I know. I mean, he was just, you know, just fantastic and very, again, very receptive. I think uh, one of the things that was uh, uh, very notable to me was the way John had grown as a director. And was able to communicate with actors. I mean, I mean, he was. I mean, he was able to communicate with Roddy in a way that helped him to put out such a great performance. You know, we, you know, you know, Roddy was always was always a uh, very receptive. He would ask me, you know, about about scenes and you know about acting moments, and we just we just we, we uh, talked a lot and communicated, and and we were and we develop the kind of relationship where we were able to play, you know, I mean, it's, you know, that's the wonderful thing about acting is if you leave yourself alone and don't, don't let your head get too much in the way. I mean, here we are. We're, we get, you know, we get to play the situation. We're two guys, two two homeless guys who are not helpless, but homeless. Yeah. So that means that we, we work, we work for our, you know, we, uh, we You know, we're not, we're not begging and we're not, we're not asking for handouts. We just need a hand because we're down on our luck right now. And that was the situation that then, and the, uh, as I said, with John setting up the atmosphere, they had built, they had built this homeless camp downtown Los Angeles and, and, and it was great because it, I mean, it was what it was. I mean, you see those uh, in lots of towns where uh near, Railroad tracks or industrial areas where you know homeless people make camp, uh, you know, cardboard boxes and all those things. And in, 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 in the beginning of, of their lives, you know, you see that's how we're living. We are you know, we're in this camp where there's a lot of homeless people gathered and we try to take care of each other. And John set that up beautifully, just fantastic.
1: Well, just to wrap it up here, I mean, between they live in the thing. What are your What is your favorite memory of working with John Carpenter of seeing the guy in action?
3: Uh one of the things that to this day remains most impressive to me was you know he, he, um, John worked with the crew that John worked with. He worked with, on many movies, so the day was great. I mean, it was like a twelve hour day. You know, come in from from uh, come in to go out. You know, it was you know very rarely did we go over time, of uh, course. That I remember. I mean, I'm, you know, we're talking about thirty years ago, so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I But I do I do remember that you know he he was very very efficient. You know, and he didn't you know he didn't do a whole lot a whole lot of takes. You know, you you know the actors become prepared, and then we'd do the scenes. If he needs if he needs it again, he'll say he needs it again. You know, for some tech reasons. Or if he wants to see a different reaction, he'll talk to us about a different reaction. And, you know, you give it to him. I mean, one of of my favorite memories in the world uh, is the scene where we're tied up and testing the blood. Oh, yeah. And Donald Moffat Moffat, um, is asking us to untie him. Now, what you saw on the camera, what they kept was a completely genuine reaction because we'd done we'd done it once or twice maybe three times and then John whispered something into Donald's ear and we didn't know what to expect and then suddenly you know he went from being this very quiet you know gentleman if you don't mind I Rather not spend the rest of the evening tied
0: to the fucking couch. You know?
3: <laughs> and the reaction that you see from us was genuine. Because we had not expected that. I don't, I don't know what John said to him. But, uh, it it, it, was, it was it was brilliant. It was just brilliant.
1: Well, that's great. That's so great. Listen, Keith David, thank you so much for taking the time out of your (laughs) busy schedule. We know that you're in production, and uh, we're just very, very grateful that you took the time to call in and share your memories of working with John Carpenter on The Thing and on They Live. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. You're so welcome. Have a great day. Bye bye. Yes. What a nice guy. Finding you he would nice. put
2: on the sunglasses. Just put on the sunglasses. Put
1: on the sunglasses. Put on the
2: sunglasses.
1: Well, that brings us to appropriately number one on our Fast Five. Which, which has to the be. Big... Wait here for a little
3: while. See what happens.
0: Oh, oh the,
1: the end thing. of the thing. Released June 25th, 1982. The same day as Blade Runner. <laughs> Tough competition. Tough competition. Also the same month as Rathacon, E.T., Poltergeist. But this movie is not just terrifying. It is disturbing. And it is really one of the scariest movies ever.
2: Because it's dark. It's tense. Such a feeling of claustrophobia. A feeling of paranoia. It's a
1: paranoid thriller.
2: The tension that runs throughout. I mean, you don't know who... Or what might be the thing? Or where is it? Or where? I mean, we're talking off-camera about the dog, how great the dog was at the start. You don't really know what's happening. And then when he's just like there in the cage looking all evil, the special effects still really hold up.
1: Oh, they're so good. I mean, these are practical effects, you know, props and makeup and everything. No CGI. For example, the scene when the guy's chest opens and he used the flamethrower and his head detaches and the legs come out and the antenna come out. I mean, it is wildly imaginative stuff uh, based on the novella who goes there written by john w campbell jr and a remake of 1951's the thing from another world Mm -hmm. and it is just one of the best remakes and most incredible remakes of all time
2: well it's interesting that kurt russell who of course stars in the film who is such an iconic iconic character once again mccready he said this movie won't be appreciated for 20 years and he was right I mean, what do you think it was that made it a cult film and not something that was straight away embraced by people? Because I look at it and I'm like, this is a fantastic movie. It is
1: a fantastic movie. Unfortunately, people did discover it on other mediums. Whether they watched it on TV, they watched it on VHS, and uh, that's really how a lot of these sort of cult movies find their find their voice.
2: It's creepy. The score is great. I think everyone, if you haven't seen the thing, you should definitely watch it, regardless. And you should you should also watch it before you see the Hateful Eight because oh, they right. apparently they've weaved in some The Thing references in there. You know, it's the cold, they're isolated, they're all in the one thing, the paranoid, the tension. Also, I think it has a lot of humor as but well, Tarantino style. But this movie, The Thing, is literally about alienation.
1: And this was hard for, for John Carpenter. He said, I take every failure hard. The one I took the hardest was The Thing. My career would have been different if that movie was a big hit. may not have been a big hit, but it is generally regarded, especially by profiles and Profilers as John Carpenter's finest movie. I had
2: so much fun rewatching it.
1: Yeah, me too. Me too. I and mean, it really like was. I was just shaking my head watching, going like, "My God, this movie is fantastic! It holds up so really, so well."
2: Oh, and can I ask you, without giving anything too much away, what do you think happens at the end? What oh. who do you think? Do you think the thing? Continues. Is,
1: I I feel like I love the ending. I love how I love how ambiguous it is. It yeah. doesn't just like sort of like we got him and everything is good. You don't know. Maybe you didn't. Maybe it's Kurt Russell. Maybe it's Keith, Keith David. David. You don't know. And I don't know.
2: I think I don't know. if you watch the movie and if you see it again, watch uh, Keith David's breath or lack of.
1: Oh. Mm. That's no what kidding. I noticed
2: because at the end you see Kurt Russell breathing heavy.
1: But you don't see Keith David breathing. Yeah, in. That's did you read that somewhere? Because that's an incredible theory.
2: I saw it and then I read it as well. So okay. it's not it's not a unique theory to me, but I definitely noticed it. Mark Tordai, who's a great profiler, says the thing is a masterpiece, plain and simple. In a similar vein to other sci-fi horror masterpieces like Alien, the thing is an isolated, cramped, paranoid sci-fi thriller horror, and one of the best ever made. If you haven't seen the thing, make sure you see this movie as soon as you can. Although released. In 1982, the practical creative effects hold up well, and I guarantee the thing will not only frighten you, but keep you guessing till the very end. Dear yeah, Moore didn't want to come home until I'd stopped watching
1: the oh, thing. That was probably smart <laughs> if you don't like scary movies. And we're going to give the last word to Tyler Myers, who says the thing is one of the most visceral horror films ever made. Its gloomy atmosphere, interesting characters, and incredible special effects, mainly practical, are all top-notch across the board. Its themes of paranoia, isolation, claustrophobia, and trust are flawlessly handled and make for a compelling story amidst all the dreads surrounding the movie. Carpenter exemplifies these factors to make a film that's very brutal but also smarter than your average monster film. It's sci-fi horror at its finest.
2: Oh, Yeah.
1: And that brings us close to the end. But one more stab at business. You want to do the honors? All
2: right. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, Profiles with Malone and Mance. That's where we gather your comments. Oh, no, he's putting on his mask. That's where we uh, we do the brackets as well. Um, subscribe to YouTube.com slash Popcorn Talk Network. That's where you can see the show live ugh, yeah. every second Tuesday right here. And you can participate in the live chat, which I try and keep my eye on. Subscribe to iTunes. Don't forget to rate and review because we're... We love reading all your reviews. Mance Myers often sends them to me, and I I love reading them. And you can follow us on Twitter, at MovieMance, at Alicia Malone, at MovieMance, at Alicia Malone. Pause. At Movie Mats at Alicia Malone. And if you want a t-shirt, go to tpublic.com slash user slash profiles. There's a bunch of stuff there. Whew, so, Mr. Myers, shall we recap
1: our five? Recap in the fast. The fast five. Number five. They Live. Number four. <laughs> Escape from New York. Number three. Starman. Star number two. Halloween. Halloween. And number one. The Thing. The Thing. And Close
2: my book. I protect myself against you. And before we go... Should we announce who we're doing next so on Let's profiles? announce
1: that. Next time on Profiles, two weeks from today, we are profiling Bond, Bond. James Bond. Woo. This is going to be a fun show. Yes, we are going to cosplay again for this one, so make sure you come back. Until next time, <laughs> bye! <laughs>